Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Okay, so a couple weeks ago, I thought I was concluding our series. I talked about the mind of Christ. Do you remember this? I talked about kenosis and harpogmos. Do we have anyone that was here? Okay, great. I was really excited about Harpagmas and Kenosis, but I was talking to somebody that, you know, is one of our elders and they had no idea what I was talking about. So it was quite frustrating for me. But anyways, but I felt compelled because I did share with you two weeks ago that um, the reason I started the series had to do with some conversations I was having with atheists, with those that were churched and in leadership and then those that were in church and at some point left the church. Do you remember I was saying that there, there, there was a season where the conversations I was having with these types of people were all kind of hitting on the same thing. And that was the idea that um, the, your view of God shapes the world you live in. And so from that kind of moment um, and that revelation, you could say this series was birthed and Bill and I walked through it together and we were excited to teach about health and life and loving God and loving yourself and loving others. Um, but. I wanted to share this morning um, that this series was a personal series for me. And I'm going to be brave and just open up and allow you to see where this is coming from for me and speak through the scriptures um, together so we can land together. And um, so for me, the, this, this series comes from kind of my story. So in October of 2009... We planted the Garden Church at Cohiba Nightclub. We were meeting before then, and that, that October, our church grew from about 30, 40, 50 people to over 100 pretty quickly. Um, and uh, it was one Sunday afternoon around 4 o'clock. We, st- we only had s- Sunday night services then at 6 o'clock that I uh, found myself lying on my back, looking up at the ceiling in our one-bedroom apartment, hyperventilating, watching the walls cave in as I wept with tears and hyperventilated trying to catch my breath. And my wife laid next to me or sat next to me holding my hand and speaking in a very dull and soft voice said, counted one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Breathe. One, two, three. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Breathe out. I was having a panic attack. I uh, had experienced those in the past, but in October of 2009, they began to come more regularly. I, um, for those of you that have never experienced a panic attack, it, it feels like you're dying. <laughs> it feels like there is adrenaline rushing through your body. Rationality does not work. Talking somebody out of it only makes it worse. The best thing you can do, other than medication in some moments, is um, count your breath and focus on your breathing. Because the world is so big, it feels like it's crashing in on you. And I was, um, at that point, aware then that I had a deep insecurity. And I was living in fear. And what began early on in my life was beginning to... uh, Develop and more realized as I began to church plant. I was so terrified of failing. I was so afraid of making you. Un, uh, I was I was so afraid of not making you happy that I did everything I could in planning a church to please everyone around me. 
I was afraid that we wouldn't succeed. We were given 10 months to plant a church that would become self-sustaining. Now, most churches have to do that between three and five years um, and raise support. We didn't do that. And so I had this fear that I wouldn't be able to provide for my wife. My wife was sick at the time and I had this fear that she was going to be sick for the rest of our marriage. And I lived in this constant place of fear, fear of others, what people thought of me, fear of failure, fear, fear, fear of not providing. And it had began to grow and grow. And as our ministry began to grow, as it went from 30 to 40 to 100, the insecurity got deeper and deeper and deeper. And the feeling of inadequacy that I wasn't good enough to speak. I wasn't the best preacher. I just poured myself into work. I poured myself into making everyone happy, to doing the best dang sermon I can do, because if I don't, you're all going to leave. And it grew and grew and grew. And I became um, sicker and sicker and more panic attacks came and it, it the, the the anxiety level over the next few years grew so what started in 2009 as panic attacks would occur once in a while every few months or so and then as the church began to grow as more and more people came more and more people that I had to please more expectations that I put on myself the anxiety grew as well and to the point where I didn't know the difference between um, uh, e- doing emails and feeling anxious and my wife being rushed to the hospital I was at a constant state of feeling anxious burnt out exhausted and tired friends would text me and say hey let's go go surfing and the idea of scheduling a surf appointment overwhelmed me And I know many of us struggle with this. This is my experience. And then in October of 2012, three years later, I found myself at a doctor's office. Um, Anxiety was just the way I knew how to live. Because as things grew, what I learned was that when things are growing and going well, you just run faster. And I was at the doctor's office because that, uh, that Sunday I, I collapsed and passed out in the car after I preached at Cohiba. And the next day I was bleeding from places you shouldn't bleed. I was having stomach issues. I was losing weight. I wasn't sleeping. I was constantly anxious. And I finally went to the doctors and they did three months of testing. Cancer was thrown in there, polyps, all sorts of things that you don't want to hear as a 28-year-old. The church was going well. More money, more people. I mean, all the things that churches count, number of seats filled. Yep, that's good. Community groups starting, life stories, baptisms. Everything was going well, but I was becoming smaller and smaller, more afraid. I was becoming more and more anxious, more burnt out, more exhausted and further away from who I really wanted to be. Doctors eventually diagnosed me as being stressed. They couldn't find anything. They said that I was, so, I was carrying stress in such a way that I was causing my body to bleed. And that I shouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> Thank you. And rather than taking medication, I just continued on and I tried to pace myself, which didn't really work. Because deep down inside, I was feeling so inadequate. And so uh, it was a few months later that I was sitting in a bathtub, a cold bathtub. I found myself with the walls caving in, trying to breathe, and my wife holding my back, counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, breathe. And it was then that I realized finally that I needed a different God. 
I don't mean I was worshiping a God other than Jesus, but I, I had a distorted view of who God was. The God I worshiped never could be satisfied. The God I worshiped um, could never be fully satisfied. It left me with a deep dissatisfaction in my soul. I, I, I was constantly needing the approval of others. I was needed to make everyone happy. I was needed to feel, uh, uh, fill the void deep inside my soul with this false view of God. That I was just doing all this stuff, stuff, 60, 70, 80 hours of work. I was working my butt off, constantly not feeling good enough, feeding this insecurity that laid deep inside my soul. And Jesus saved me from that God. And becoming fully alive for me was a quest to become a person that I longed to be. And I, I had to choose in that moment what God I would worship. And this morning, I want to challenge all of us with this point. We, many of us, are serving other idols and other gods. Our view of God, whether it's Jesus or not, our perspective of God, for many of us, has been distorted from our relationships here on earth, from our parents, from past churches. We have been given a God that looks nothing like the revelation that Jesus gives us in the scriptures. And this morning, I only want to make this point that you can become fully alive, that you can be who you really want to be. If you choose it, it's your choice. And so for me, let's get to the end, but let's, let's get there through scripture. If you have a Bible, go to Matthew chapter six. I want to make this point through the sermon on the Mount from a text actually that was the very first sermon I ever had to preach in Bill's class when I was 19 years old. Not realizing that this would become the very text that would haunt me in my life. So for those of you, we haven't been teaching the Sermon on the Mount, but I want to catch you up to speed on what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. And if you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles on the side. I encourage you to have one specifically today, because I'm going to make an illustration that won't, won't make sense. Unless you have a Bible in your hand. Um, and if you have a phone, that's fine. But it will also ruin the illustration. But <laughs> Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, Matthew, um, or, uh, organizes his book in a unique way. And the Sermon on the Mount is uh, basically Jesus' teachings summarized. Of, this is what Jesus' message was. And the Sermon on the Mount was, um, you could say, is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Okay, so he's, he's articulating what it means to be a disciple of his. And you could say that it's also what it, uh, Jesus is describing what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. So that's what we're, that's the context of the sermon. Now, the sermon itself is beautiful. It begins with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, you've heard this, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Jesus lists all of these things called the Beatitudes, which um, for many of us, we've seen the Beatitudes as conditions of blessedness. You know, like in order to be blessed by God, we have to become poor in spirit. How many of you have interpreted that that way? You've interpreted that, that text that way? Okay, some of us are tracking. But here's the point. They weren't conditions of blessedness. You see, in Jesus' day, there, there, it was very clear who was blessed by God and who wasn't. It was based on how much money you had, your status in society, your gender. If you're a man, you are more blessed than a woman in that culture. 
it's, it's very similar to our culture today that we see God's blessing and favor on those that are wealthy and healthy and successful and have money. But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't teach that. He begins a sermon by saying the least likely folks, the people that you should, that should never be blessed by God, you're already blessed by God. You don't have to do anything to be blessed. God's favor rests with you. The poor in spirit, those that have no spiritual bone in their body, God's favor rests with you. You who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness and, and you've seen injustice in your life, you want justice. Those of you that have been wronged, God's with you. That's how he starts off this sermon. And it's profound. It's as if where society says to be blessed, the bar is here. And Jesus says, if you want into my kingdom, the bar is way down here. You're all welcomed. And then, and then he says, once you're here, this is the expectation for what it means for you to live as a disciple in the kingdom of God. He goes on to say, hey, you've heard, you know, don't murder. But I say, don't use anger inappropriately. You said, you know, don't commit adultery. I say, don't look at a woman in lust. You've heard, don't make oaths. I say, your yes is yes. Give to those who ask. Turn the other cheek. Use your resources in a way that will last for eternity. That's the kingdom of God of God. That's what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple. And that's a summary of the Sermon on the Mount. So we pick up in Matthew chapter six, verse 25, the text I want to talk about today. And um, it's this whole thing for me that has framed this, this text. It says, uh, I'm sorry, this series. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body. What you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith, So do not worry, saying, what will we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So Jesus says to us, in the kingdom of God, we don't have to worry about life. Cool. That's great. I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor, I'm a church planner, and I'm struggling with anxiety. God, what the heck does this mean? I, I have serious problems. I have a sick spouse. I'm not going to have a rent check. I'm, I'm literally making myself bleed. Uh, I'm not worried about food or clothing at this point. I'm worried about serious things. What do you mean, do not worry? Is anyone else struggle? Well, some of us, you know, no, you, you get it. You get, you get the point. You've, you've read the American dream translation and it's basically this. If you put the kingdom first, then he gives you everything you want. Seek first his kingdom and you get everything you want. Wealth, success, a healthy, uh, uh, do you have that translation? Uh, 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 a beautiful spouse, education, um, a 401k, a second home, a boat for those summer days. All you got to do is put them first and, you know, five easy payments to me. Um, 
No, but in all seriousness, that is called the prosperity gospel. And it, it is plaguing Christianity. And whether or not we go to, you know, we're not, we're, we don't believe in the prosperity gospel. Because Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to go to the cross. And that's not very prosperous. You have to die abandoned and alone. <laughs> that's not very convenient for us, is it? So, uh, anyways, so we, we, okay, so if it doesn't mean that, I mean, he's, what is he doing? Because he says the word worry six times, and he says, do not worry um, three times. And in ancient writings, if you wanted to make a point, you didn't have caps lock or emoticons or, you know, um, at signs and hashtags. You did not have those things to punctuate what you mean. Instead, you repeated yourself three times. If you want to say God is holy, what do you say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. If you wanted to emphasize something, you'd repeat it. And Jesus, more than any other place in the Sermon on the Mount, repeats himself and says, do not worry. Yet anxiety is one of the most diagnosed things in our society today and in Christian churches. The Latin root for anxiety means to be torn apart. Means to be ripped apart. And the image comes from when they torture people to death. They put their body limbs on four different horses and they were pulled apart. That's the image we have for worry. So what is Jesus saying? How can he say this? And as as I was processing through this, I think um, the only way we can understand this is by reading the passage right before this text. And that is that's where we find our solution for what Jesus is getting at here. So. Um, Grab your Bible and go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, and pull out your wallets. Seriously, pull out your wallets. Now, for those of you that have your Bible on an iPhone, this is just unfortunate for you. Because you have two idols in your hand. <laughs> ah, I told you, Nate, the drummer. <laughs> you needed it, bro. <sighs> so, Bible in one hand. Your wallet in your other hand. Let's do it. For real. Let's hold it out like this. We're going to read it. And I want, I want to make a point. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moths and vermin destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moths and vermin do not destroy and these thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and capital M money. Okay, keep your wallets in your hand. I'm going to do it as I talk. Matthew 6 says this, um, treasures. Do not store up for yourselves treasures in, on earth, but treasures in heaven. The idea of treasuring is not bad. Okay, treasuring, we all treasure stuff. Uh, treasures are, think of them as values. What do you put value in? What, what's weighty in your life? What, what holds weight and significance? And Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves the things that, that are valuable in your life that are going to be destroyed but, but treasure, value things that will last for eternity. So treasuring involves money, possessions, wealth. Most of us, yes, if, if I said bring your bank accounts next week and let's see where your heart is, 
could you tell me, would you be a little vulnerable showing me? You'd probably say if, if I, you know, as a, as a rule of discipleship, hey guys, every time you come in, we're just going to go over your bank accounts and we're going to see where you are serving, where you are loving. Do your finances point to God or do they point to something else that you worship? Because Jesus is saying, I'm going to hold this as I talk because this is helpful for me because I struggle with this. I don't know about you. But so Jesus is saying, value things, treasure things that will last for eternity. So he's saying there are things on this place that you can treasure that will not continue on in the age to come. So let's say we're living our lives valuing things like relationships, like generosity, like service, like humility, like love, like like obedience to God. What's going to happen is we're just going to continue on living when the age to come happens or when we die and enter into this this heaven reality um, or, or, or when we enter into the presence of God or Jesus comes back. We're just going to continue on living as we were. I mean, perfected and whole in a whole new paradigm, of course. But I think Jesus, what Jesus is getting at, because remember, the kingdom of God is available here and now. The heaven life is available here and now. He's saying you can treasure the stuff of heaven now, today, and live in a way where you just keep on living. And there's no transition. Some of us are going to be holding this on as we go. And our wallets are the things that we treasured. Our finances, our success, our name, the, pr- the approval of others. The car, the 401k. That's what we treasure most. Forgive me for getting so personal today. But Jesus gets personal because he says this is about your heart. But then the next line, this is the line I want to focus on because this makes the point. He says, no one can serve two masters. And the word master is really slave owner. You can't have two slave owners. You're a slave and you can't have two owners. That's what he's saying. You'll hate the one or love the other or be devoted to the one or despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon is the Aramaic word. Some of your Bibles, how many of your Bibles have mammon? How many of you? Okay, so a few of us. So the Aramaic word for what we're trying to get at is mammon. And it means wealth, possessions, materialism. And what Jesus does is he names a deity. He names a God. So when you see the capitalized M for money, that is a Hebrew, an Aramaic way. That's an old, uh, an ancient Near East way of, of looking at the personification of a God. And Jesus singles out mammon. And he doesn't single out out any other God in all of the Gospels. It is the only God he names. Because possessions, wealth, mammon is in direct opposition to the kingdom life. If you look in your scriptures, he does not name any other God. But he he says that uh, the, the number one competition against the God and the kingdom of God that he's inviting us into is possessions and wealth and stuff. Now, mammon, what is mammon? Now, I love that Jesus names this deity, that it actually had a name. Because for us, we can go to Fashion Island or we can go to Lakewood Mall and we don't recognize that there are powers and principalities at work. Suresh actually came one time to Newport Beach, went to Fashion Island. And he says, I'm so glad I live in India. Why? Because we actually name the gods that the, that people worship. You just go and buy from them. Now, I'll just speak from my heart because I know none of you struggle with this. 
But when Jesus names mammon, he, notice he doesn't name the approval of others. He doesn't name sexuality. He doesn't name the, the God of knowledge, the God of... He's naming something that he thinks will be the biggest distraction in his disciples' lives. Because mammon provides meaning, identity, purpose, and community. We find comfort in having a bigger savings account. We find meaning when we work to make a bigger paycheck. And Christian culture, and forgive me for being, um, I'm not going to apologize. Christian culture is feeding us this stuff. It's junk. It's spiritual potato chips. That we think we can actually serve God in all this stuff. And so we might give 5, 10% because that's what God commands. But we build the second storehouse for all of our junk. And Jesus is saying that is opposed to the life I call you into. All right, now to make it a little lighthearted. Uh, can I get three volunteers? <laughs> We're going to play some. All right, you come down. We got two. Let's get, let's get one more. Yeah, Matt, you're getting, let's get up here. All right, can you give these guys some, a round of applause? Right. What's your name? Kyle. Kyle yeah. Chris and Matt. Matt, I'm going to have you stand in the middle. You represent everyone here. Okay. Stay right here. Okay. And uh, Chris, you represent God. Okay. So everyone, God and Chris. Now, I'll, I just want you to play back and forth. Can you try your, your hardest to this is smash ball or paddle ball as gently as possible. Just go back and forth. You can go ahead and start. It's, it's your life. Serve, serve to God. That was, oh, look at God dropped it. Okay, we're doing good. There we go. Yeah, look at this. He's playing the game. He drops it. But you know what? God doesn't care. God doesn't. Hey, I, I, I was never a junior high pastor, by the way. So, well, you're really ruining my, my, <laughs> there you go. Hey, okay. It's not bad. Get a, get, get a groove. Front row, watch out. <laughs> okay. Not bad, right? We'll give him a round of applause for that. Matt, stand right here. Kyle, all right, you represent the world, mammon, and possessions, okay? Here you go. So God, would you serve, and mammon, would you serve, and try to play both games for as long as you can, okay? Let's go ahead and see how this works out. Right, serve it to him. You guys are playing him only. There you go. Yep, keep, it, keep the ball alive. Keep it alive. I mean, seriously, hey, and Matt, if you can get 10 in a row... Matt, if you can get 10 in a row, I'm going to give you $100 today. I have $100 cash. Matt, and your job is on the line for this, so you're going to lose your job. Okay, you get the point. Let's give him a round of applause. The word worry means to be torn apart. To be torn apart. To be divided. As silly as, as paddle ball. Uh, there's a great uh, author who actually passed away and uh, he actually suffered with anxiety and depression most of his life. And he uh, said this. He wasn't a Christian, but I've shared this with you before, but I wanted to read this because I think this will illustrate the point. And he um, he was a professor at, uh, I think, Claremont or I think Claremont, not Claremont College. He was a pre- professor at a college in Southern California. Can we put that on the screen? Um, OK, David Foster Wallace says this. Everybody worships. 
The only choice we get is what we worship, what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. If, if it's truth, uh, it's the truth, excuse me, worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It is that they are they're unconscious. They're, they are the default settings in our lives. David Foster Wallace reveals, he, he just gets it, that we all worship something. And they are our default settings. We do it naturally. We live in a society that says more is okay. More stuff. Focus on the bigger house. Focus on your, on your family. Focus on your life and your dreams and all those things. Make everyone happy because that's how you're going to be successful. But Jesus says you have to choose. You can't do both. And his assumption is you choose God. Because then he says, therefore, do not worry. The secret to a non-anxious life is devotion to God. At some point, you're going to have to recognize that your default is to worship all the other stuff around you. But at some point, you're going to have to choose to worship the living God or all the other things that come confront you in your life. If you want to, if you want to worship success and people, you're going, to, you're going to find yourself burnt out and being torn apart. And Jesus says they make lousy gods. But if you choose to worship the one true God, then you do not have to worry about your life. You do not have to worry about your life. You do not have to worry about your life. Verse 31 says this. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the pagans Run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Now, the word pagan in Jesus's context is a non-Jewish person. And remember, we're talking about people that had different paradigm for life. They had a worldview that said they were products of accidents of many gods that were at war with each other. They didn't believe like the Jewish community that God was the creator of heavens and earth. That he revealed himself with love, compassion, and justice. That he was their redeemer. He didn't invite them into a covenantal relationship um, like everyone, uh, like the Jews. Um, he separated them from the world. And the world didn't have that relationship with God. The pagans worshipped primitive forms of gods. They, they worshipped the god of rain. They worshipped um, the, the sun god. They worshipped the fertility god. They worshipped all sorts of deities. And they gave their finances. They gave their lives. They gave everything they had to these gods because they never knew if they were happy or angry. Does this sound familiar? They were burnt out. They were having panic attacks. They were exhausted. And they were tired because they were worshipping the wrong god. And Jesus says... That's what pagans do. And the assumption is also that we know who our Heavenly Father is. That you know what our God is like. That you know that you've been invited into a relationship with Him. 
That you know that He loves you as you are, not as you should be. That He knows your needs before you ask. You know where you stand with God. For those of you that have, been ent- that have entered into this kingdom relationship with Jesus. The pagans don't. So Jesus comes to save us from those false gods. So becoming fully alive. Only way we can really live is if we worship the true Jesus, the true God of Scripture, the God that has been revealed to us over the last few weeks as we've talked about this in our series. Some of us worship pleasure. And I'm using this word worship. You find meaning, significance. You find yourself valuing money, pleasure, your success, your dreams, your hopes, your, your family, certain relationships. You find all of that, that, that all of that stuff takes the place of God. And some of us worship a God that looks more like culture, the convenient savior, the kind king, the pleasant redeemer. And this Jesus wants to make you prosperous. That's not what it means for us when we say we want to invite you to become fully alive. Because for us to fully live means uh, for us to fully die to ourselves and take up the cross. But Jesus, brothers and sisters, and this is what I want to conclude on, is the revelation of God from Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. If you have any doubt this morning, you will no longer have a doubt. This is who Jesus is. He is the Son. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in all things, uh, in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning of and the firstborn among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself, whether things on earth himself, all things, I'm sorry, reconcile to himself, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is the revelation of God. In Luke chapter 7, God is a lender who generously cancels the debt. And in this case, the lifetime sins of a prostitute. In John chapter 10, Jesus reveals God as the God of the 99 sheep. And he leaves them behind to go after the one lost sheep. Jesus, in Luke chapter 18, says God hears the prayer of slumlords, drug dealers, and terrorists. The equivalent of the first century tax collectors and prostitutes. Again and again, Jesus reveals a God who is surpassing in goodness, boundless in infinite mercy. He is like a father whose younger son rebels and squanders his inheritance. And he comes back with his tail between his legs. And rather than shame and condemnation, the dad throws a party and welcomes, welcomes him home. Jesus is the only God. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Son of God, the Good Shepherd, the Prince of Peace, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the resurrection and the life. He is the light of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the great high priest, the Lord of Lord, and the way, the truth, and the life. And he's asking you, him or anything else? You have to choose. He's asking you to choose. And for me, I had to choose that God over all the other things that I found meaning and purpose in. And that took a lot of work. That took a lot of work. This morning, I think some of you, the invitation, the classic way to turn from idols, the word is repent. So for me, when I met Jesus again, 
recognizing that this God I was worshiping approval and all this stuff. It took me repenting from those things. I was hardwired. It was my default setting to, to make every appointment, to, to, to work long hours, to, to make sure everyone was happy, to work harder and harder because of that fear, feeling that void, filling that void. And that was my default. And I had to choose to repent and choose to worship God. I had to turn away from that life and go a new way. And guess what I did to do that? It started with eating healthy. It started with Sabbathing once a week, taking a Sabbath once a week. It started with sleeping at least seven and a half to eight hours a day when I wasn't doing that. It started with working out. That's how I repented. Because the way I was living was saying, I'm living under the yoke of an oppressive God who's not pleased with me. But a way of, God says, I come with peace and rest. So my life had to develop naps on Saturdays. How many of you, that's good news. <laughs> How many of us are exhausted and burnt out? And when Jesus says, I come to bring you peace, we're like, I want that peace. That surpasses understanding. Yeah. And then, you know what else I began to do? And I was doing this, but in a different way. I started off every morning with worship. I put on songs and I tried to sing to God. And then I would read scripture and I would sit in solitude and I would pray and receive my belovedness. And you know what the outcome has been? I'm less interested in making you happy. And I'm more interested in being obedient. Ask my wife, I'm more patient, I'm happier, I'm healthier, I'm not bleeding anymore, praise the Lord, and I haven't had a panic attack in a long time. Amen. Jesus is offering you the same life, but you have to choose. For you, it's different. But I want to invite you to choose him this morning. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.